this week I'm going to pick up what it means to love your neighbor. And when we went through Love God, one of the things I tried to establish, and I hope I succeeded, is that love in that context is not some kind of a gooey emotion. It's okay if you emotionally love God. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. But that isn't what the passage is really talking about. What the passage is talking about is love in the sense of covenant love. Covenants in that part of the world at that time would say that the vassal king is to love the suzerain. So you have a high king or a powerful king and you have subordinate kings around him and usually one of the clauses of the covenant between them is that the vassal king will love the suzerain. Again, in that sense, there's no emotional connotation there whatsoever. What love means in that sense is in any given situation, you, the subordinate king, will act as you think the suzerain king would act in that circumstance. Your duty and your expression of love to the suzerain king is that you'll do what he would do under those circumstances. Or another way to say it, when you act, you will act in such a way as to not damage your liege, and you will also act in a way to do him good. So that's what love means in that context. Once you've come to God and you realize the magnitude of the things that he's done for you, there's no problem having emotion about that. I'm simply saying that's not what the passage is talking about. Mere obedience is not sufficient. Of course you're expected to obey, but if that's all you do, you are not demonstrating love of God. What you're expected to do is use your intelligence in furtherance of God's objectives as opposed to simply obeying the rules and staying out of trouble. Love is an action, not an emotion. Right now we're at Shavuot, and what book do we read at Shavuot? The book of Ruth is read on Shavuot, and Foreman has got just a wonderful series on Ruth that he's done over a couple of years. I'm going to do about half of it, and I'm going to do it abbreviated. What he starts off with is if you look at Abraham, Genesis 12, Abraham just sort of drops out of the overhead. At the end of 11, we have discussion of Terah and Terah's family, and then all of a sudden, Abraham blossoms in to the progenitor of all believing people in the Middle East. I mean, Muslims trace their lineage to Abraham. Christians trace their lineage to Abraham. Jews trace their lineage to Abraham. Who's this guy Abraham? And how does he just sort of, boop, there he is. I picked you, Abraham. What Foreman does is he goes through why that is. And in order to understand it, you've got to back up to Genesis 11:27. Now, these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abraham and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Ishka. Now, Sarai was barren. She had no child. Then Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his 
son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. And the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. What Foreman teases out of this is why it was Abram, as opposed to any of the other people named in the Bible. We have these genealogies that go on and on and on. And why this guy, as opposed to a dozen other guys? And where he comes is this story is, in fact, typical. The elements of the story are you have a father, you have three brothers, you have one brother dies. And it turns out that that happens every ten generations in the Bible. And how that is dealt with by each of those ten generations is the key to why Abram is the guy and not somebody else. So let's back up ten generations from Abram. Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So you have a father and three brothers. In a sense, one of the brothers dies, doesn't he? Because Ham is cursed. Ham isn't cursed, his descendants are cursed. It's as if he dies and has no progeny because his descendants are all cursed. In the physical, they do. But symbolically, what's happened is you have a dad, three brothers, one of the brothers dies. Back up ten generations. That brings us to Cain and Abel, doesn't it? And there you have Father Adam, and you have three sons, one of whom dies. Cain, Abel, and Seth. Go back to Abram for a minute. Go forward now, ten generations. Three brothers, brothers in quotes, one of whom dies. You have Boaz, you have the near kinsman, and you have Elimelech. So what I'm saying to you is every ten generations, starting with the first family, we see this pattern repeat. First off, you have the dead brother. And the dead brother has interests. But they are not interests he can do anything to advance because he's dead. So to advance your dead brother's interests then becomes the ultimate act of chesed, kindness. Because you are doing something for your brother, but he cannot pay you back. It is a pure act of love. So now let's start with the first one, Cain, Abel, and Seth. And what you have is the dead brother is Abel. Who advances his interests? His parents, Adam and Eve. Because they're the ones that act. And if you look at, at Seth, he is explicitly a replacement for Abel. The parents are the ones that exercise the kindness, if you will, and replace Abel. Forward to Noah. Who do the two brothers protect? Their father, not their brother. The two brothers do a kindness, but they do the kindness to their father, not their brother. Fast forward again. We're going to go non-scriptural on you for just a minute, but it'll be okay. Now you have three sons, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran dies. He's got one son and two daughters. Nahor explicitly marries one of the daughters. Abram marries somebody, and what the rabbis say, and I firmly believe, is that that somebody is Iska, even though she is called Sarah. Iska means princess. Sarah means my princess. 
And then you have this little thing in there that Sarai is barren. So what Foreman is saying, with which I agree, is the two brothers marry the two nieces with the intention of building up their brother's house. In this case now, first off you had the parents are doing kindness to the dead son. Second one, you have the two brothers are doing a kindness, but instead of doing it to their brother, they're doing it to their father. Third case, now you have the brothers doing kindness to each other. The two surviving brothers step in and set up so Heron's household continues and is built up. His daughters are taken care of. They're taken into a family. They're married. They get children and so forth. If you go forward to Elimelech now, Elimelech has sons, and all three of them die. So now Ruth is stuck. Orpah, who is the other daughter, is released by Naomi and said, go back to your people, find yourself another husband, go on with your life. This is all a dead end. Ruth says no. And what Ruth does is she comes back and she builds up the house of her dead husband and father-in-law. So she now is acting the part of the one who is the kinsman. And oh, by the way, we have this seduction scene that happens on the threshing room floor. And this happens two times previously in Scripture. You have Judah and Tamar, Lot and his two daughters. And what you have in both cases, there is deception. With Lot and his two daughters, they get dad sort of drunk. Boaz is sort of drunk, isn't he? And in the case of Tamar, you have deception. Ruth shows up in the middle of the night and lays down at his feet and, whoa, what's this? In the case of Tamar, Tamar is explicitly building up her husband's house because she has not been given the third son as a husband. Father and three sons again, right? Judah and three sons. So she hasn't been given the third son, so she takes matters into her own hands and deceives Judah into performing the duty of a kinsman. In the case of the two daughters of Lot, they explicitly say that they are building up their father's house. They are perpetuating their father's line, and they do it again by deception. Ruth, on the other hand, when she shows up in her best dress, smelling as good as she can smell, and lays down at the feet of Boaz, when Boaz sits up, sort of tipsy, because they've been having a harvest party, right? It specifically says he had been drinking and his heart was merry. So one of the things she can do when he sits up and says, who are you? She can say, what's the matter, big boy? I'm here. Which is exactly what happened with the two daughters of Lot and Tamar. They both did this anonymously. What Ruth does is she does the honorable thing and says, you are my near kinsman, spread your wings over me. So it's a proposition of marriage. It is no longer a shack up on the threshing room floor. So Ruth does it properly, whereas the two previous cases it was done by deception. Boaz does it properly also. Boaz has the opportunity there, if you will, to take advantage of the situation, and he does not do that. If you look at the family trees, what you have is Terah, Abram, Nahor, Haran. Abram comes down, and you have from him Isaac and Jacob. 
Nahor, Rebecca, Leah, Rachel, and Lot. We come down to Moab, to Ruth. So all of the lines of this story start with Terah. The male line comes down through Abraham, and the female lines come down through Nahor and Terah. And it all comes back together at Boaz. And from there, you get David. All this is by way of saying, we're still on Love Your Neighbor. And the question is, why Abraham? And what I'm hoping is I have answered to your satisfaction, why Abraham? Abraham loved his brother. In that, what he did is he took action to build up his brother's house, even though his brother could not repay him, because his brother's dead. And oh, by the way, Canaan is the cursed son of Ham, so Abram, in building up his father's house, also goes down and redeems the land where Canaan was sent and cursed. Now do you begin to see why Abraham is the guy? The reason Abram gets all the ink is because he is someone who loved his brother as himself. Now, fast forward to Yeshua. And what Yeshua does, and he says it in three Gospels, but I want to go to Luke because that's the clearest one. I'm in Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? He answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength and all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly, do this, and you will live. But desiring to justify himself, said to Yeshua, Who is my neighbor? So now what we're going to do is we're going to make the leap from building up your brother's house to building up your neighbor's house. Yeshua goes through the parable of the Good Samaritan, and I don't have time to teach that. I've taught it lots of times before, and you're probably all familiar with it. What Yeshua sets up in this circumstance, where you have the guy that goes down from Jerusalem on his way to Jericho, he's beset by robbers, and they beat him unconscious, and they strip him. And in John's version of this, he's laying face down. So what that means is you can't talk to the guy so you can't recognize his accent. You can't look at him and recognize from his clothing what tribe he's from. And as I say, in my version, he's laying face down so you can't even tell whether he's circumcised or not. So what Yeshua has set up here is a generic human being. The only thing you know about this guy is he's human. You know nothing else. And remember the context here is, who's my neighbor? What the lawyer is hoping is going to say is your tribe, your family, your nation, something reasonable. What Yeshua does is he says, who's the neighbor here? And the lawyer is forced to answer the guy that helped him. He's very wisely set up a situation where there is nothing that you know about this guy except that he's human. So what Yeshua has now done is extended love your neighbor from this room where we're all neighbors to the world. In that context, what I'm suggesting to you is love your neighbor means a couple of things. And again, it has nothing to do with emotion. What it has to do with is, first off, doing good for your neighbor. 
And that's what Abram did, his neighbor in this case being his brother, physical brother. He did that, and that's how he got to be the big dog in Scripture. Because he was the first one that did that. Remember, we have this same situation repeating every ten generations. He's the first one that gets it right. And that's why he becomes the man he is. Then we have the Torah. And what the Torah talks about is, again, sort of a minimum standard, which is to say you can't murder them, you can't cheat them, you can't use dishonest weights and measures, you can't slander them, you can't do all these things. And I'm suggesting to you that just like our earlier discussion on obedience, that is necessary but not sufficient. Because all that does is set you up so you don't harm your neighbor. And that's a wonderful baseline. Most people don't attain that baseline. I'm not suggesting that that's trivial. It is not. It is not at all trivial. But that's not what love your neighbor means. It's the base. What love your neighbor means is take every opportunity to do good to your neighbor. And I'll give you a couple of examples. It says explicitly in Scripture, if your poor neighbor comes to you and he needs to borrow money and you know that the year of release is coming up, you will not harden your heart and withhold your hand. You will lend to your neighbor. Even though you know that the year of release is coming up and there's no way that sucker is going to earn enough money to pay you back before the debts are canceled. You can't even think about not lending him any money. So that is by way of doing good to your neighbor. Another example. And this one I'll have to credit with for Ralph Messer. He told this years and years ago, and I never forgot it. You have a farm or a piece of land, and you want to sell it. Just want to move, whatever, no particular reason. What you are obligated to do is you are to go to your neighbor and give him first right of refusal. You don't have to sell it at a discount. But what you do is you give him the first opportunity to buy it, because in buying, he now has two pieces of land, and the two pieces of land together are going to be worth more than the two individual pieces separately. So what you've done then is you have gone and you have done good to your neighbor. And as I say, you don't have to take a loss. You don't have to sell the loss or anything like that. You still get market value. But what you're doing is you're looking out for your neighbor. You are attempting to do him good. And that's what love your neighbor means. What you try and do is you try and set things up so your neighbors around you also prosper. As with God, simple obedience, simple not harming him is, of course, necessary, but it's not sufficient. What you really want to do is you want to look out for your neighbor and you want to take opportunities so your neighbor is blessed and prospers. That's what loving your neighbor means. And Yeshua, by the way, broadens who your neighbor is. What that translates to me is you go through life looking for ways that you can bless people. And it doesn't have to be somebody in this room.